Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark and welcome to Season 7. Woohoo! Before we begin, we would love to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and we hope you had a lovely one. And then also a very happy new year because it's the new year now, guys. It is, yeah. Happy new year, everyone. Here's hoping 2022 is great for all of us. We would also like to say some thank yous to our newest patron supporters. So people who have signed up since the end of season six. So thank you to... Uh, so that's Charlotte Light, Alan Dickey, Adele McCafferty, Amanda Libicons, and then Bethan's put here M. Nicola Long. <laughs> I think you just mean Nicola Long, don't you? The M is because you're Mark and you were going to oh, say that shut bit. shut up. Shut the fuck A up, A bit Bethan. like where it says B, hello and welcome oh, to seeing whatever. when I'm Bethan. Whatever. Oh dear. Do you want to try that bit again? No. <laughs> thank you so much, everybody. Honestly, thank you. And if you'd like to join these guys, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast and check out the tiers of membership and all the content that you can access there. And one final thing before we crack on with this week's case, we are both really excited to share with you some of our plans for 2022. So we're going to have some collaborations with other podcasters for you and some interviews lined up as well. We're very excited about those. And we will be heading back to CrimeCon and this time I will be there too, uh, which is the best news ever, I'm assuming. Has everyone missed me last time, I hope? Annoyingly, loads of people did say they were upset that you weren't there. Really annoying. We're going to be there on Saturday the 11th, aren't we? We will. So we'll be there on Saturday the 11th and you can use our code RED again, so the word RED, and that gets you your discount on your ticket and a goodie bag full of merchandise. So please come and see us there. Okay, enough of this chit chat. Have you managed to get us a more lighthearted case? Because we ended season six on a bit of a dark note with a case around modern slavery in the UK, which was just tragic. I have indeed gone for a much more lighthearted case. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> um, no, Bethan's you can just put... say good. That's fine. Just, just good, say good. Fine. So this week, I'm going to begin my episode with a specific phrase, and I really hope you'll indulge me in giving a small shout out to our friend Andy, who has begun his own podcast entitled Picture the Scene, and he discusses true crimes with co-host Rachel. The way he introduces his show is not only a very clever way of getting the listener hooked from the get-go, it also kind of reminds me a little bit of you, Mark, and your in-real-time narration. What, has he copied me? No, he's done it better. Oh, wow, okay. Ha. Thought you'd enjoy Rude. that. I don't have um, whatever. It's not something I'm going to plan to do very often, and who knows, this might just be a one off. But I enjoyed being a little bit inventive, using a bit of artistic license, and writing in a little bit more of a creative way. Oh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, and I've I've totally stolen from Andy this first line. Totally stolen. Also, you you're kind of stealing from my original style from years ago, and which I stole from Crime Watch when they do the reconstructions. They would say it's Saturday, the eighth of March. Blah blah blah. Well, who really owns language? The Queen. The Queen does. So, I'd like you to really imagine yourself here. I want you to sit back and close your eyes, if it's safe for you to do so, and to picture the scene. It's the early hours of a Sunday morning. It's the 18th of March, 1990. The day before was St. Patrick's Day, but unlike many others in Boston, where you live, you were not out drinking that Saturday night. Instead, you'd been at work. Your job as a night watchman in a gallery isn't one you particularly enjoy, but working nights pays okay. You'd much rather be getting high right now or playing with your band. 
As a young man in your early 20s, many of your friends had been taking advantage of their weekend off to have some drinks, probably wear a silly hat, hoping that the luck of the Irish might be on their side, they might get a kiss from a pretty girl. But you had been sat in the foyer watching security feeds. You had been patrolling the empty floors, just you and your colleague Randy to chat to. For a self-confessed hippie who often heads into work high, it was a lot more subdued than your friends' nights. It was boring, in fact. Or so far, at least. 25-year-old Randy heads off for a patrol around the building and you sit back in your chair, as you have done so many times before. You're relaxed, dreaming of your day in bed the following day, thinking of your buddies who will probably be spending the day in bed but with hangovers, perhaps bad decisions to regret. You think about getting high and not having to deal with this place the next day. Suddenly, your daydreams are interrupted by a buzz on an intercom and you look to the security camera for guidance. Outside are two men. They're not drunken jokers as you expected. No, these are police officers. What could have happened, you wonder? They ring the bell and they say, Boston Police, we've got a report of a disturbance on the premises. That's strange, you think. You hadn't noticed anything. You buzz them in. Approaching your desk, striding across the foyer, the police officers ask if you're alone and you say no. My partner's doing a round. They ask you to call him down, which you do, and Randy appears. But then one police officer takes a harder look at you. Don't I know you? Don't I recognise you? I think there's a warrant out for your arrest. Can you step out from behind the desk? You comply. Sure, there's been some mistake made, but then he orders you up against the wall. The police handcuff you and Randy. You can feel the wall against your face and the metal against your wrists. You're sure that this will all be ironed out soon enough. But then your blood runs cold as you hear one of the officers say, Gentlemen, this is a robbery. Oh, I'm loving this, Bethan. Did you like that? I loved it. I was immersed in it. It was like a, a scene from a film or something. I loved doing this. Oh, I really I enjoyed tell. writing that. And I enjoyed reading it as well. I felt like an actor on the screen. I loved it. And you did a fantastic job. And also the great thing is that we're obviously covering a robbery today. So uh, what I like to call a victimless crime, isn't it? In a way. No, I'm not. Way, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious. Of course it's not. There's but no it's physical not as bad. violence. So I have chosen this week to present to you, like we alluded to, a different type of case. This is an infamous art robbery, and it has been inspired by listener Matthew Roberts, who suggested this kind of theme of art heists. I really wanted to go with something lighthearted compared with the cases we ended 2021 and season six with. And whilst this is still a terrible crime and surely terrifying for the guards involved, it has no deaths. So it can't get much lighter than that, can it? That I would say literally only 5% of the cases we cover have no deaths. So there you go. Before we return to the early hours of that Sunday in March 1990, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the art gallery in which the robbery occurred. So a bit of a history lesson for people, I'm afraid, but I think you'll enjoy it. I hope you will. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is an art museum in Boston, and it was founded by a woman who I loved reading about. Built between 1898 and 1901, it was founded by Isabella for her art collection of paintings, sculptures, tapestries, rare books, and so much more. She had letters, things, all sorts of stuff. And she basically wanted it to be permanently exhibited for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. Isn't that nice? That is, yeah. I love it when people do that. She was a leading American art collector, philanthropist, and a patron of the arts. Isabella has also been described as unconventional, with an energetic intellectual curiosity and a love of travel. She was a friend of a number of the famous faces of her time. She surrounded herself with artists and writers, and often featured in the gossip columns for her stylish tastes and her reputation for being eccentric. 
She apparently enjoyed the company of handsome men. Who doesn't want a life like that? And she was born into money, but wanted to make art accessible to all. She sounds epic. I'm not surprised that you enjoyed reading about her. She sounds great, doesn't she? So much fun for that time as well. That's it. She wasn't willing to do what was expected by society and she really enjoyed causing a bit of a stir. She once famously arrived at a symphony orchestra concert in 1912 wearing an outfit that included custom Boston Red Sox regalia. So she loved her baseball as well. So that was quite fun. The gossip magazine Town Topics covered this bold decision and said that Mrs Jack Gardner should resort to such sensational methods to keep herself before the public eye as to wear in public a white band with OU red socks in red letters on it. Looks as if the woman had gone crazy. With this band bound like a fillet around her auburn hair, she appeared in her conspicuous seat at a recent Saturday night symphony concert, almost causing a panic among those in the audience who discovered the ornamentation and even for a moment upsetting the orchestra members so that their startled eyes wandered from their music stands. What a scandal! She wore a headband, and then Lady Gaga turns up in a flipping meat dress in other in later Which years. Which I loved, it's just mad. loved that. Yeah, honestly, how times change. But I really enjoyed her. I thought she was just wonderful, and I would urge any of our listeners to go and have a little Google of what she looked like, the way she dressed, just her presence. Even in photographs, you can see that she must have been great fun to be around. Following the death of her husband in 1898, Isabella had brought a plot of land. Uh, it was undeveloped land in Boston's Back Bay Fens area, which was surrounded by swamp. So it was not the sort of place that a woman of you know high society and money would usually have bought. And that was where she built this palace of her own. It was inspired by her travels, which had been with her husband. And there's a lot of history about her and her husband and all the places they went to. They were real collectors of, of art and of things. In this really unusual building, she filled three floors with her collection and then she lived on the fourth floor. So I thought that was quite fun as well. She just decided this is what I want. I want to be part of this. And it was, the whole building is just her. And to surround herself with with all of the things that she loved and all of those memories from her travels with her late husband. It's lovely, isn't it? Exactly. One painting of Isabella showed her in quite a risque outfit for the time. It had like a daring neckline. But the main thing about the painting was her very cool and kind of so what attitude in the pose. She has her arms up and she's just looking dead at the at the painter. I was going to say at the camera, but it, she just seemed to be very much like, this is me. I am who I am. Like it or lump it. I just scrolled down the script because I knew you'd put a couple of photos in. I was like, oh, I bet you've put a lovely photo of that in or a photo of her. And I looked, <laughs> no. at, the, I looked at the photos you put and I'm like, the fuck is this? It's a, I mean, I won't spoil it, but I think that's a woman. It could be a man with like gaffer tape bound round his head, like some kind of fetish. But anyway. No, this was, this was you. You pictured yourself as him. That's Richard. Ah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So over the next 20 years, Isabella not only filled this building that she had created with her collected items, she also invited visual and performing artists to come and perform there or to create art within the building. So she had painters like John Singer Sargent painting on site. People could wander around and they'd look in the room and he'd be there painting his amazing artwork. There were concerts held, lectures held, dancers and opera singers all performed there. And also, which I loved, she'd wander around sometimes and shout at the visitors, just don't touch that, don't touch that. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It truly was 
her place, her heart and soul went into the building, the gallery, the collections. Isabella died in 1924 and even in her death she was in control. She made a stipulation in her will that the museum could never be changed and actually until this robbery in 1990 not a single one of the 2,500 works within the Gardner Museum's walls had ever left the grounds or even been moved. So let's return to 1990 to that fateful Sunday morning. With their mouths and heads duct taped the security guards were left in the basement of the building taped up to a pipe and a workbench And then the two robbers spent 81 minutes going round taking a number of pieces of art. And here I've put in the photographs of Richard, who you imagined yourself as, Mark. Um, And as you said, taped to these things. The reason potentially you thought it was a woman is because of that long, glorious flowing locks. (laughs) Honestly, it looks like he's got a perm. He looks like a stoner, doesn't he? He really does. And he totally calls himself, like, he just calls himself a hippie. Yeah, Whenever he him. talks about himself in any news articles or anything, he's like, sometimes I turned up to work stoned. I just didn't want to go to work. Like, sometimes I'd just do this. Didn't really like these people. And you could just imagine him going like, yeah, man. It's He's just so typical of that 1990s, quite grungy Boston guy. I quite like it. I feel really sad as well now because you painted the picture so vividly of this museum and the legacy that this woman left, whose name I can't remember, that's how... Isabella. Isabella. Uh, You painted the legacy that she left so vividly and yeah, it's it's such a violation that these robbers are in there uh, taking all all this stuff, yeah. Do you know what? That's the thing. Even though we talk of this as a victimless crime and we talk about it as not a violent crime and it's more light-hearted... It is still very, very sad because luckily she's not around to see this happen. But yeah, like her heart and soul went into this. Yeah, it's her life's work. She curated Mm -hmm. this whole collection. I'm not sure if she had uh, children, but I'm sure she's got descendants. And it would have been really, really upsetting for them uh, to to see this this violation. That's what I'm going to call it, a violation. Yeah, I think that's a really good word for it. In just under an hour and a half, the pair of robbers stole 13 works of art. At the time, these were collectively valued at $200 million. And in today's money, that's around $500 million worth of artwork. That's mad. I'm now thinking, like, weren't there two and a half thousand pieces of art and sculptures and everything? The total value of that collection must be in the billions. It was ridiculous, yeah. So the selection of items appear to be quite random. So more expensive items near to artefacts that were taken were left. So most notably, the museum's most highly valued painting. This heist was not a quick in and out smash and grab heist. These stolen items were spread across the three galleries on two separate floors. The thieves really took their time. And I think when you think about 81 minutes, that is a long time. That's as long as some films are. And if if you look at a more classic robbery like a burglary or uh, somebody who robs a bank, it's in and out in seconds, really, or one or two minutes at the most. So that that is crazy. 81 minutes in there, filling their boots. The thieves smashed glass panels, they tore down frames and they sloppily sliced paintings from their canvases. The list of stolen items included a 12th century Chinese beaker, an eagle finial from a flagpole of the 1st Regiment of Grenadiers of the foot of Napoleon's Imperial Guard, paintings, sketches. I don't know much about art, but even I recognise some of the names in the list. So Johann Vermeer, Edgar Degas, Rembrandt, 
much more. So the most valuable piece that was stolen was Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was the artist's only known seascape. And I actually knew what that painting was before I looked online. He's the only artist I've heard of. But yeah, I know. I mean, he's a ma- he was a massive artist, yeah. And in a quite an interesting aside, the Gardner Museum was not insured. No, what the fuck? Well, this is the thing. That was my initial reaction. But now I can explain to you why. Because it does seem odd considering how many priceless items it held. And I wanted to look into this. According to the Washington Post, many museums are uninsured because the objects are irreplaceable. And so they said many museum directors prefer to spend the tens of thousands that they would need for premiums on salaries for extra guards. Kind of makes sense. Because I think to insure a collection valued at billions of pounds... I don't know what the premiums would be on that, but millions of pounds a year. Yeah, I did find a quote which said about how much this was worth. And actually, I'll try and find it and I'll put it onto our social media when we upload this episode because it did kind of talk in actual figures around it as well. Um, Kind of better to stop the thieves from even trying than to spend a ridiculous amount of money to an insurance company. Those items can't be rebought if they were stolen anyway. So it it did make sense to me once I kind of looked into it. Yeah. And also for the Gardner Museum, specifically, Isabella's will makes sense as to why you wouldn't have insurance. The New York Times wrote, Mrs. Gardner's strictly worded will specifies that the museum may not buy or new or substitute works of art. So they wouldn't have been able to replace the stolen paintings, even if they had insurance. That insurance money wouldn't have really been good for anything Re- like except for trying to find the thieves well I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have managed to put it to some good use somehow I'm sure I'm sure you would yes I don't know why I made that sound so filthy I don't know what I was thinking there but it sounded really rude sorry you know Mark. me too I didn't well mean to say you you're know a sexual I'd... deviant well I'm definitely especially after the Patreon episode we just recorded <laughs> oh, about Danny Tetley but um... you'd have done a huge coke binge there you go yeah of course very me yeah <laughs> So the management of the museum had to address the losses they had suffered, but they also had to respect this clause in Isabella's will. So, quite interestingly, they chose to rehang the frames where they'd been, but without the art inside. And that's still the case to this day. And that is art. That is art. I think it's quite a moving tribute to the artwork that, spoiler alert, has still not been recovered because, yes, 30-odd years later, the artwork is still missing. None of it has been recovered. So after the thieves made their escape with their loot, 25-year-old Randy and 23-year-old Richard, so who you were imagining yourself as at the beginning of the episode with your long, glorious, flowing locks and your dreams of your weed back at home, stoned off your tits, they were left in the basement for hours until the morning shift arrived for work. When they got there, they found the security office door smashed open. They came across a huge mess of frames scattered across the floors. And then finally, they found the guards down in the basement. Now, I just want to ask, were there any alarms? Or I guess maybe the alarms wouldn't have gone off because uh, Randy and Richard are patrolling and stuff. Do you know what I mean? So Yeah, so there's yeah, motion yeah. sensors which recorded and basically they would the, the alerts for those would go down to Randy and Richard. And they would then investigate. So it wasn't like if you walk into that room, it's going to call the police immediately. There was a button under the security guard's desk that they could press to call the police. But because they'd been called round to the front by who they believed Mm. were police officers, they were then taken away from that alarm button. They had no other way of contacting the police. And there were, luckily, the motion sensors kind of give you an indication of what happened. So they were able to piece together what the robbers had done. But aside from just being a log... 
didn't do anything. And also when they buzzed at the side door, they'd been let in by Richard. So they were in the building almost legitimately. They There was no reason for an alarm to go off when they came in because Richard had buzzed them through. Yeah, well, he thought it was the police. So he's not going to he's not going to set an alarm off himself and they're not going to set an alarm off, of course. So this second shift of guards had phoned the police as soon as they realised what had happened. So the police arrived at 8.15. Finally, Randy and Richard had their handcuffs removed. And finally free, you'd think that this would be a huge relief for them. But I really, really feel for poor Stoner Richard, who was soon being investigated by the FBI as a serious accomplice. Well, I was going to say uh, my initial thinking is that one of these two, possibly Richard, is in on it. I know. Well, I'm going to say straight off, Richard Abarth has maintained his innocence ever since and he has never been charged or convicted of anything to do with the heist. And he also stated that he passed FBI lie detector tests. So he didn't do it. No. But to be fair, a number of factors did point towards him being involved, at least, if not behind it. Until you remember that he's like a 23-year-old kid in a stoner that doesn't... he's He's not a criminal mastermind, but... A lot of people like you thought that potentially it was him. So he had randomly opened a side door and then closed it again, which isn't something he was meant to do just before the robbers then arrived at that same door. When he was asked about this, he said he was just checking it was locked and that he did this at random times. But it was thought that potentially this had been a signal, like the coast is clear, come on in, or I'm ready for you or whatever. He did say that he'd done that randomly at different times it was just something he did to check the door was opening and operational and I think I read somewhere that when they looked back on the locks they couldn't find that ever happening before so why would he say that he had and that is quite a specific thing to do and it is it is it does appear to be a or it could be misconstrued as a signal it's a weird thing to do isn't it but then how many times have you done something strange for the first time and something's happened and you think, God, that was a weird coincidence. I've never done that before. And now X, Y, Z's happened. Never. Have you not? No. Well, I probably have. Yeah. Like when I've gone into a, a car park and flashed my lights at a car and and then, then someone... ended up dogging? Basically, yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with us today? Crikey. We've well, got it's be- it's because brain. It's because we've got some light relief with this one. I think it is. We feel like we can be silly again. Yeah. So another thing was investigators felt like this had been an inside job because the robbers seemed to know where they were going for the series of thefts and that they'd felt comfortable enough to spend such a long time inside that building. So like I said before, they had motion sensors and in one of the rooms, a painting was stolen and basically the motion sensors indicated that a person had been close to the artwork prior to, but not during the robbery. So that kind of seemed to indicate that the artwork had been removed from the wall in preparation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. So they they kind of know that that painting's, or someone's been near to a particular painting that has then subsequently been stolen. But nobody was near to it during the time the robbers were there. So, I mean, that is a massive coincidence. There's two and a half thousand pieces of works here. And one of the 11, was it that was stolen? Uh, Someone had been... 13 someone had been near to before it started so that's weird that's weird and the last person to enter that room was richard richard Mm -hmm. i knew it yeah 
But the FBI agent who oversaw the case in its early years apparently stated the security guards could not have pulled off this crime. They they had to investigate because obviously a lot of coincidences pointed at Richard. But, but I'm not I'm not saying that Richard's pulled off the crime. I'm saying that he's taken a bribe of like an ounce of weed from the real criminals who have said, right, open and close this door when when it's ready, when Randy goes to do his walk around and it's just you. And, you know, get get a couple of these paintings down off the wall so it'll be a bit quicker for us. That could have happened for an yeah, ounce of weed. Was, he'd do anything. That was what they, I think, really, once they started looking at him, that was it. Was he some sort of accomplice? Was he part of this? But no, there's not really any real evidence to show that he was. It, it genuinely was that he... There's this, these coincidences and he potentially did do something weird, but mm. there's no evidence. And there's also no video feed. So you don't see what happened in that room. The motion sensors could have been faulty. And that was something that they did look into was whether or not they potentially had been wrong before or, or anything like that. And, and how many other paintings had Richard gone near to where a motion sensor might have detected, but those paintings weren't stolen? Exactly. So you, you, when you're looking for something, you might find it, but you're not looking for the stuff that you're not looking for, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think I've been at the weed, haven't I? I know what you mean, though. You, you start to see things that potentially you wouldn't have seen because your mind is focusing on a person as a, as a suspect. Oh, this has fucked my brain up now, but yeah, basically that. So because the gallery was equipped with these motion detectors, but no cameras, you can kind of see a log of, and the alerts are quite interesting because the alerts are something like, um, like 0147, movement by XYZ, alert, go and check this out. And it literally says stuff like, go check out, go check out, like search for this. Because these alerts would have been sent to the computer that the security guards were sat at. Um, so the thieves movements were completely recorded and so this is kind of the routine that they took so in the dutch room thieves cut out rembrandt's christ in the storm on the sea of galilee and a lady and a gentleman in black from their frames they removed vermeer's the concert and flink's landscape with an obelisk from their frames they pulled an ancient chinese bronze goo or beaker from a table and finally took a small self-portrait etching by rembrandt from the side of a chest on the same floor as the Dutch room was the short gallery and in there they took five Degas drawings and a bronze eagle finial and next they went to the blue room and that was on a different floor and they took Manet's Shea Tortoni and the thieves made two separate trips to their vehicle taking artwork back out to their car or whatever vehicle they were using before finally leaving for good at 2.45am. So it was very, very audacious. They'd left the building, taken stuff to whatever vehicle they had waiting and come back in and carried on. But doesn't it also sound very specific? They've taken 13 mm-hmm. specific items. Very specific. And, they must have had a list. Yeah, they must have. And the fact that they've been in there for 81 minutes says that they are hunting around looking for these specific items. And also that they were... This is another thing that kind of highlighted why Richard was so under suspicion, was... How did these robbers know that the police weren't on their way? They were so yeah. confident in the fact that the police were not coming that they're just wandering around. They didn't rush. They just took their time. But then also the fact that they must have had a list because they were ripping things. They were cutting stuff in a way that probably a proper art curator or someone who loved the arts or Isabella herself would not have done. They wouldn't have ripped things and damaged them. So they're obviously not arty people themselves they're obviously working for somebody to get this artwork Mm. 
Yeah, this has been stolen to order, hasn't it? And I also felt awful because it's it's now 2.45, they've left, and then they, the police don't get there and save Richard and Randy until 8.15. Do you reckon they had to wet themselves while they waited? Oh, God. The they, valid well, question. Yeah, I, assume they, I assume they probably did wet themselves, Mark. I'd like to take a moment here to praise you for not giggling at the fact that one of the men's name was Randy. Very proud of you. I think because of my surname, I um, it just goes in one ear out the other. Yeah, fair enough. Was that one of your awful nicknames as a child at all? Uh, it was one, one of yeah. them, yeah. yeah. Kids are cruel. So anyway, the audacious heist was plastered all over the newspapers in the following days, weeks, and the gallery offered a $10 million reward for the safe return of the artwork, but no items have ever been returned. On the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum website, they say... The 1990 theft of 13 works of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's collection remains unsolved, although the museum's commitment to resolving the crime has never diminished since its occurrence 31 years ago. The museum, the FBI and the US Attorney's Office are still seeking viable leads that could result in the safe return of the art. They're not giving up, they're just like, we still want this. And it does, I don't know, like I don't expect them to give up, but I didn't expect them to still be like, the FBI is still working on this right now. But I mean, how active is it? 31 years and they've not they've not recovered any of it or got a half-decent lead. Mm. I do understand it, though, because if you worked for that museum, particularly if you'd worked there for some time, you would feel like those pieces of art are your babies, really, and you'd want to protect the legacy of Isabella, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And so the museum's website continues... The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading directly to the safe return of the stolen works. In brackets, a share of the reward would be given in exchange for information leading to the restitution of any portion of the works. So that's good. Even if you only find one, you're going to get a bit. And a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of that Napoleonic eagle finial. Anyone with information about the stolen artworks should contact the Gardner Museum directly. Confidentiality is assured. So the Napoleonic eagle finial with the 100 gram reward is obviously just a piece of shit then, if that's only attracting a $100,000 reward compared to the $10 million. No, that's on top of it. Yeah, but it's like 10 million for the other 12 works. This is true. So it's like a million each, but hey-ho. But anyway, you could get like quite a decent amount of money if you could help them, if you could find some of this work. Yeah. So surely there were more leads than just Richard, poor little stoner Richard, being a potential accomplice. And yes, but they either amount to nothing or haven't really resulted in the art being recovered or any prosecutions anyway. So it's kind of like, yeah, but almost like, so what? Like it doesn't answer anything. Because like you say, they've come to nothing. So they're not credible leads, I guess. Some people theorise that the IRA had something to do with it. That's probably one of the most outlandish kind of theories around. I, I, I mean, I'm not like the minute you mention the IRA on a podcast you get a million people get in touch with you but I sort of understand that because they were highly active at that time and they would have needed funds to fund their activities and that would have been one way like any criminal activity so you do get a lot of terrorist groups that are involved in drug dealing stuff like that to fund terrorism so I I kind of could see it it's random but potentially it makes sense as a theory but there was no real evidence to suggest why they were being picked I think potentially like you said they were just very active at that time and that's why they were chosen yeah Yeah. 
documentary makers for a Netflix film interviewed a guy called Miles Connor Jr., who is a convicted art thief, and he was in jail at the time of the robbery. So whilst not the robber, he then was able to talk to the documentary makers and give them kind of a central context about how the underground art market operated during the 1990s. So their documentary looks at potential suspects, which I thought was really cool. And I think that's a, a very, probably a very misunderstood world, um, the kind of underground art market and how it operates. So he would have been able to shed a lot of light on that, I'm sure. Definitely. So the documentary series is called This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist and is available on Netflix. So I'm totally going to have to find this now and watch it because I think it would be really interesting to see a little bit more about kind of the the way that art was stolen and how it was then changing hands and stuff because you can't do anything publicly, can you? You have to do it all very behind closed doors mm. and secretively. Yeah, for me, I think this is this is rich people stealing, uh, well, getting stuff stolen to order. Because there's a lot of people with lots of money, uh, like Russian billionaires and stuff, who want these famous artworks, like Edvard Munch's The Scream. Um, they want it because it's just so famous, but they're in museums, they're not for sale. So they, yeah, steal it, basically, or get a gang to steal it. And then they just keep it in a bloody basement in some and that's what compound. I find weird is you can never show it off unless you really, no. really trust the person you're showing. But I think they they must just almost get off on the fact that they they own that slice of history and they can go down into their big basement and look at it and think, I fucking own that, even though it's stolen, it's mine. Yeah, totally. I think they really get off on that. And in 2013, the FBI announced that they had a high degree of confidence that they knew who the two thieves were. So in 2015, they stated that the primary suspects were George Reisvelder and Leonard DiMuzio. They were two associates of a late mobster called Carmelo Molino. Both resembled police sketches of the criminals and they died within one year of the heist. So whilst the FBI kind of know to the best of their abilities who the robbers were the people behind that theft have not been apprehended and like you said they believe the art was then stolen to order these are the two thieves but they just don't know who's behind it all yeah i mean they're just like not quite patsy that's not the right term but do you remember we learned about fences we did. I remember we had a whole session on that. Um, I think, yeah, it doesn't really matter who they are. It's who's behind this. They're just the hired muscle, aren't they? And investigators managed to trace the artwork being transported via organised crime networks to Connecticut and the Philadelphia region, um, where the thieves attempted to then sell the works on the black market. But after those attempted sales, the trail went cold for the FBI. So after being able to trace where these two thieves had potentially gone initially that's that they just know nothing else so one of the biggest theories that is all over the internet and that people talk about is relating to organized crime and the mob and it feels most credible because it it links in with what the fbi were able to work out however the guy that everyone talks about is adamant that he had nothing to do with it and in fact he was so annoyed that a robbery took place on his turf that he actually set up his own investigation into who did it because he was so mad that someone had done this in his area well and that they're trying to frame him for it basically yeah potentially i mean it could be a good double bluff yeah could be but it seem he seems genuinely pissed off that someone's tried to do well has done something in what he classes as his turf 
So former mobster Robert Gentile had a number of pieces of evidence point to him. So people who stated that they had seen certain artworks in his house, um, there were different reports that he had talked about the stolen items when he was in prison. And this is kind of the biggest one for me. During a search of his home, which eventually led to his 2013 conviction for illegally selling prescription drugs, possessing guns, silencers and ammunition, there was a list found. And this handwritten list detailed the stolen paintings and their estimated worth. And it was found alongside a newspaper article about the museum heist a day after it happened. So that seems a little bit suspect that you'd have that note that you'd written out with all the values and you take a bit of a trophy of of it happening it sounds like he was involved or maybe a fence and that loads of people have said that he had paintings of or so had said to them like do you want to see such and such that'd be me wouldn't it can you imagine it would so be you'd never get away with it become a billionaire it get these items stolen to order and then rather than have it in the basement i'd have it on display and be bringing everyone around going look at this i got it stolen and Keep then i'd quiet. end up in prison <laughs> yeah don't tell yeah, anyone exactly. sign this nda yeah <laughs> So um, Robert was released from prison in 2019 after serving 54 months on a completely unrelated charge to this. And he continues to maintain his innocence. He is adamant it's not him. He's the guy who was a mobster. Mm. He's, you know, he's a former mobster now. And he actually at the time was like, it wasn't us and who did do this? So I don't know. I kind of believe him a little bit. Yeah, I'd say there's some involvement there, but not maybe not in the original heist. Maybe the paintings or some of the art made its way to him way along the road to wherever it ended up. <laughs> way along the road. The road no, but I know exactly what up. you mean. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Like, he's maybe a, a link in this kind of chain, potentially. Yeah, that's and better. Was... Better description. Thank you. <laughs> And there was a witness who was deemed credible by the FBI who claimed to have seen one of the paintings, The Storm, when someone tried to sell it in Philadelphia around 2003. And this is must be a very risky move because you might lie low for a little while, but this, as as a news story, as a, a case, and as pieces of art that are still being looked at, you, it's not going away. You're no. not going to be able to think to yourself, oh, it's been five years or it's been 10 years or 20 years or even it's been 50 years. The second you try and get selling... If you're anywhere public, people are going to know about this. I, th- I think the world in which these works of arts kind of do the rounds is a small, intimate world. People know each other. They know the art dealers. And yeah, it, it would just come up very quickly, wouldn't it? I would have thought. Exactly. Just a few months ago in November 2021. So that's very wow. recent. My birthday reti- month. Exactly. A retired jewellery and fine art appraiser called Paul Can. Knew I'd struggle on his name. Paul Calantropo said that a friend of his called Bobby Donati, which I just thought was the most Boston name I've ever heard. Yeah, that's very East Coast of America. Bobby sure. Donati. Yeah. That was my terrible accent. Not bad. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Um, he had brought him a random evil finial to appraise, but he told him he couldn't because it was clearly worthless because the world knew it was stolen. So he said this exchange had happened just a month after the heist. And who was that guy, Bobby Donati? So he was in with the mob and and organised crime and that sort of thing. And apparently Paul had said to him something along the lines of, 
Christ, you may as well have stolen the Mona Lisa. Like, what are you doing? And he was like, can't you appraise this me? And he was just like, no, no chance. Like, get out of my shop. It's almost um, like it's almost like a bunch of thick people thinking, well, I'm going to steal the most expensive stuff I can, all this kind of artwork, and then realising after they've stolen it that it's actually really, really difficult to um, sell on and make money of and turn into actual realisable cash. So this is the thing with this. It For me, it's kind of like, was this thieves who stole and then wanted to make a, a lot of money or was it somebody rich who's who gave them a list and they yeah. got all of the stuff they wanted which is it because some of the evidence points towards it's one person has given them a list and said steal all this stuff for me and they've taken it and that's why it's never been found but then there's people who say that they've seen the paintings or that people have talked about them or potentially have tried to have them appraised yeah well that sounds more like you said criminals who don't really know what they're doing so it's it's a really unusual situation where i just don't think we're ever going to properly get the answer at least for hundreds of years until somebody's great 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 granddaughter says by the way here's this thing this is like a db cooper jobby isn't it it's it uh, really is isn't it yeah like it's a it'll, it'll end up as an urban legend really mm-hmm. so a little bit after a year later bobby donati was attacked and he turned up dead in the trunk of his own car So the investigation into his murder unearthed convictions for armed robbery, arson and links to the mob. It was unrelated to what he was doing from investigations, but who knows what else he was trying to do. But he apparently had had an eagle finial that he was trying to appraise. It was seen to be the one that had been stolen. So where's that now? What happened to that? What what happened to him? So Paul Calantropo is now part of a group of four men. So this includes a retired law enforcement official and two former convicts. And then retired Globe investigative reporter Stephen Kajurkin. How do you think you say that? I think it's... Kirkian. Kirkian? Yeah. Um, So this group of men are investigating the heist and they are basically saying they really hope that they can solve the mystery of what happened to the stolen artwork. And they're going to then claim that reward, that $10 million reward offered by the Garden Museum. So in April 2021, the group signed an agreement with the Garden Museum, which stipulates the members will share equally in the reward if they can provide information that returns the stolen artwork in a restorable condition. Isn't that interesting? So they're really working on this properly, these I guys. love that. Yeah, almost like bounty hunters. Yeah. And they even gave the FBI several addresses. One and these addresses kind of linked to Bobby Donati, and it was people, you know, homes where his mum had lived or his wife had been known to go to, and things like that. Um, and it was as recent as August last year. The FBI was searching one of those homes, but there was no artwork found, unfortunately. And so, so far, no answers. But this group is really working hard on it, and you can kind of go online and look at some of the interviews with them and the things that they're looking at. So six days after the heist, the museum reopened to the public, but with the frames of the missing pieces just displayed empty. And that is how it still is to this day. Mm, I really want to go there and look at it. Me too. Road trip. So there we go, guys. I hope you enjoyed a little bit of a a slightly different and actually very interesting um, world that we we haven't really t- we've touched on it with heists and things but we haven't really looked at it properly so i found it really interesting thank you matthew for the for the idea yeah great suggestion we've never gone into the art world and it's um you do get these big art heists and they are fascinating they always capture the public attention and and they get a lot of attention in in the media so um yeah it's really interesting to delve into into a specific heist but yeah it's so frustrating that it's it's still unsolved 
Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, that's stitchfix.co.uk slash red. And you can also find us on Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week. But rather than on Wednesday, we'll be back on Friday because somebody, not saying any names, but it begins with M and ends in ARC, is going to a nice (laughs) holiday. So I'm not jealous at all, am I? Obviously not, but we, it's going to be a fascinating episode. Uh, following on this theme, I'm going to be covering a gang who raided the homes of the rich and famous in uh, West London. So, uh, yeah, keep your eyes and ears peeled, peeled for that one. Oh, that was a little bit of an awkward one, wasn't it? <laughs> Whatever, I don't give You're a fuck. You're not allowed to take that out. You have to leave I'm that I'm not going to retake it. I just don't care. At. We're done. We're done. We're done. Have a great... See you uh, then, guys. Whatever. Bye. Bye. <laughs>